Amen. Well, here we are on our Pilgrim Sunday, all dressed up like pilgrims or Native Americans, although we don't have many Native Americans I see this morning. Uh, All dressed up, we get a chance to hear the great story of the pilgrims that Naomi just shared with us, uh, the story of their beginnings of their faith in England, uh, their exile into Holland, uh, their decision to depart from Holland and head to the New World, and their many trials, uh, both preparing for the journey on the journey, uh, and then once they arrived. And then after that first year of so much hardship, being able to celebrate the Harvest Festival uh, at what we come to know now as the first Thanksgiving. And as I was thinking about what to preach on this Pilgrim Sunday, it occurred to me that one thing that probably we don't know that much about is what the pilgrims actually believed. What their theology was. What was it that drove them to go want to plant a a new colony in a new world? What is it that separated them from the Church of England? What were the core of their beliefs? Now you'll notice that in the order of service, the title of the sermon is What the Puritans Believed, Not What the Pilgrims Believed. And that's because the pilgrims, when they they came over, they actually left their pastor behind. Uh, Maybe their pastor was the wise one, John Robinson, who didn't want to take the the risk of the journey. But when they came over, they actually didn't have uh, a clergyman with them, and the pilgrims are not known for their intellectual tradition. The Puritans, on the other hand, are. The Puritans uh, were representatives of a great intellectual movement within England, and those people who came over to Boston initially, among their number were some of the leading intellectuals in England of the day. But we know that what the Puritans believed, the pilgrims believed something similar. So what was it? What was the content of their faith? The pilgrims and Puritans were Calvinists. That is to say, they owed their beliefs uh, to the traditions that grew out of the writings of the French theologian John Calvin. Now, if you've read anything about Calvin or know anything about Calvinists, their bedrock belief, the sole belief that it was the cornerstone of everything, was a belief in the sovereignty of God. For the Calvinists, the most important thing was that God ruled everything. God was in control of everything. So much so that God knew what was going to happen. God knew what was in your hearts. You, in fact, did not have free will because God was in charge. Not only did you not have free will, but because God was in charge of everything and knew what was going on, uh, Calvinists believed in what we call predestination. The future is all laid out before us God already has it figured out. But as time rolled on uh, with the Calvinists, uh, there were a number of theologians who were wrestling with what this meant. And of course, there's some problems with predestination. One of them is, and this is the one that comes up most often, is, well, if everything's already determined, why should I be good? You know? I mean, if we're... If you have this great Calvinist God and everything's figured out and those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell has already been determined, so why should I be good? Why should I just carry on doing my same old stuff? 
Another problem that arose was, how do you have assurance of salvation? In a Calvinist, strictly Calvinist viewpoint, uh, God's will is inscrutable. That we never really know the will of God, therefore we don't even know whether or not we're one of the elect, whether or not we're saved or not. So these two challenges, why live a moral life, who are those that were saved, these two challenges were uh, taken up by these Puritan theologians of the 17th century. And they developed a system that relied on the great concept of covenant. If anything defined the theology of the pilgrims and the Puritans, it was the concept of covenant. Pilgrims and Puritans proposed that there were two different covenants. There was a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. So God, they looked through the Bibles, they said God created a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden, which was a covenant of works. God said, I will keep you in the Garden of Eden and everything will all be well. The only thing you have to do is make sure you don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the covenant, pretty straightforward. Adam then broke the covenant. But God is loving, and so God ends up creating a new covenant with Abraham. Also, a covenant where God says, I will be your God and the God for your descendants. And then this covenant is then elaborated on with the law of Moses. And you have this great elaborate covenant of works. God is like, I will be your God if you just follow these rules. But, of course, human beings mess up. And they don't follow the rules. The covenant of works, they don't fulfill. But God is still loving. So what does God do? God creates a new covenant. The covenant of grace. Covenant in Jesus Christ. And Jesus' death pays the penalty for the failed covenants of the past. And Jesus' righteousness fulfills those covenants. And if you believe in Jesus and have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a part of the covenant of grace, and you have the grace to live into the covenant of works. Simple, right? After service, if you take the time, if you look in your bulletin and read through Uh, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you see a lot of these same themes coming up. That human beings were lost uh, to sin. Uh, Human beings uh, couldn't get there by themselves. Jesus comes in, uh, and through Jesus, and not through works, but through grace, you're able to live into the works of God. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. But you might be wondering, as you sit there in the pews, What on earth does this have to do with me? (laughs) This old theology, this old 17th century theology, why are we talking about it now? Why don't we just leave it in the 17th century as an interesting historical footnote? But the one thing I love about theology, I guess this means I'm in the right profession, (laughs) is that the more you get into it, the deeper you go, the deeper the layers of theology, oftentimes you see insights that you don't expect. One of the great benefits of being in the Christian tradition is that we have this wonderful uh, 2,000-year tradition of Christian theology. And I'm always struck that when I read old Christian theologians, the great theologians, and you start to investigate their beliefs a little bit more, it's amazing how much spiritual insight is there that you can take away for yourself. And as I was reading through this theology a little bit more closely, there were three basic things that struck me about this that I wasn't expecting to find. 
I mean, I had set up this sermon topic months ago, and as I was reading it through, I'm like, I, I was actually surprised by these three things. The first is the way John Calvin approaches his doctrine of God. Calvin doesn't start by saying, oh, God is sovereign and controls everything, and your job is just to obey. No, he starts with you. More importantly, he starts, he starts with the person who doesn't believe anything. And he says, okay, you're going about your life, but at a certain point, something in your life strikes you about your own brokenness, your own woundedness. As you're going through life, you realize that something's not quite right. You might be uh, in your profession, and uh, all, all of a sudden, you're, you're getting one great uh, you know, sort of kudo after another, and then something doesn't go right, and you're struck with how empty it might be. Or you realize that your own selfishness, your own selfish ways has le- have led to broken relationships with others or to a sort of a deep-seated unhappiness. And when you get to that point, you then begin to see the world a little bit differently. And in the midst of that, you're struck with the presence of God. And where you reach that point of belief in God is when you reach that moment of awe of God. Could be when, you know, let's say you're one of those early pilgrims and you're looking out over the great expanse of the Atlantic Ocean and just in awe of the beauty and power of nature. Or perhaps you're a parent looking at your child and in awe of the miracle of life. Or you're in awe when you're in need and someone reaches out to you and help and something just strikes you and you are struck down and brought to your knees. There's that sense of awe. This is where Calvin begins. And Calvin states that that that, that type of God, that type of God is inscrutable. You can't try and figure out God. God's ways are beyond us. The world is capricious. But in spite of how capricious that world is, how unpredictable that world is, there's still the presence of God that's there. And that's what Calvin was wrestling with. And I'm amazed about how similar that is to some of our thoughts on God today. As liberal Christians, we don't like putting God in a box. We often say, you know, often if you've ever read that book, your God is too small. There's this sense of when we actually think about God, how do you approach God? In a certain way, the appropriate approach is just to be in awe in God's presence. The second thing struck me about this Puritan theology. It's this funny bit about this covenant of works. According to Calvinists, you don't have free will. Which means when you mess up, it's not your fault. You're just human. What's remarkable about 17th century Calvinist theology is that it does not emphasize human guilt. It talks about sin, of course. But even talking about original sin, the problem with original sin is that the covenant was broken and needs to be repaired. Not so much that there's some really nasty, bad thing about human nature. Humans are simply human. They're fallen. And they're fallen just by the nature of being human. And the last thing we can do is blame other people for their fallenness because they're just being human. 
And I think of how much, how many similarities that has with us here, and again, in the liberal Christian tradition. We've experimented with different uh, confessions of sin or not, and I go back and forth, and MJ and I talk about this back and forth. But, and, and certainly as liberal Christians, we believe in sin. We believe that we're sinful people. We believe that we are broken people. We, we, we affirm that we don't always do right. But we also affirm that by dwelling on guilt for that doesn't actually get us closer to God. That the emphasis needs to be on grace. And you look back at these Puritans and there's similar themes that are there. And it's also fascinating to look at this covenant of grace, how this covenant of grace worked. Again, this, 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 I was fascinated by this. I, was fasc- I don't know, maybe you're not as excited, but I was really fascinated by this. The Puritans did not affirm some great conversion experience. There was not some great moment where uh, you have this altar call where you walk on down and you, know, you, you know, say, praise Jesus. That, is not, that was not the way the Puritans did things. Quite the opposite. That starts coming up in the first great awakening in the 18th century and divides the congregational churches, actually, and comes up even more so in the 19th century in the Second Great Awakening, and we're very much inheritors of that today with much of Christian theology. But that was not true in the 17th century. The way that it worked in the 17th century is they talked about how what you needed was saving faith, and the saving faith started as a small seed within you. To know whether you have saving faith... You need to have something within you that draws you closer to God. Some part of you that seeks a closer union with God. And it starts small. And then, through the course of your involvement in the Christian faith, through the preaching of the word, through prayers, through, through good works, that little bit of faith gets nurtured through grace. And the grace keeps working in you. And the faith keeps growing. And it's this long journey. It is a pilgrim's progress, as John Bunyan talked about. A lifelong journey of sanctification. But it starts small. And you know it's there because you have a desire to get closer to God. How similar this is to the perspective that we have on our faith today. And I think about how motivating this faith was for the early Puritans and pilgrims. To believe that God was calling them on a great adventure. That God was there present. Asking them, seeking them, calling them to be bold and do something new. And you know that God is there because you believe in God's presence. And the faith that grows out of that sense of covenant where all of a sudden, in spite of the travails and trials that they faced going across the ocean and then especially in that first bleak winter, to be able to believe in that covenant and to be able to believe that God's grace is still at work amidst all of that suffering and to be able to focus on the grace calling you forward. Nearly 400 years separates us from those first pilgrims to today. And yet when you think about what they believed, it's amazing that they were human just like us. They struggled with the struggles of life just like us. And it's remarkable to me that in their journey of faith, how many resonances I find for my own.
So when you sit down this Thursday with your families around your Thanksgiving table or your friends, and you're enjoying and giving thanks for all the blessings that you have in life, I hope you do take a moment to stop and pause and remember the early Puritans and pilgrims, not just their story, but also what they believed. Can you find a sense of that awe in the midst of life? Can you not dwell on things that you're guilty for, but still acknowledge a brokenness? And most of all, can you hear the word of God in small bits, calling you bit by bit on a journey closer to God and with one another? If we can do that, I think we'll be good inheritors of the faith of the pilgrims.